Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You know what I love about this? You could never tell they were rich. It's all so classy and understated. I'll make it up to you later. Make it up to me now. Let's find a room. They must have a few. You're so bad. This is what rich, entitled people do when threatened. They conceal the ugly truths to protect themselves. The community is in shock tonight over the gruesome discovery of a fourth grade mother found bludgeoned to death. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Still Watching The Undoing. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us, what we do on this podcast every week is that Richard and I pick a show that we're currently watching kind of obsessively. We break down uh, the latest episode. We give our impressions. Sometimes we have interviews. We've got two great interviews for this last uh, episode of The Undoing. We've got Nicole Kidman and we've got Susanna Beer, uh, who directed every episode. So what what more could you ask for? Hugh Grant is on the run, as far as I know. So uh, Nicole is left here to tell her story. Um, and she called in from a helicopter is that right uh, incredible incredible stuff you can't tell it because our editor is a genius so you won't hear the helicopter blades but live from a helicopter it's nicole kidman uh yeah so we're here to talk about the finale of the undoing and i just want to issue a quick correction on uh something i said last the last couple episodes about our plans for the flight attendant uh for some reason i thought it was a six episode show it is an eight episode show it does not change our release schedule we will still be releasing uh the last episode when i said we would be but you will instead of like dropping one episode at a time they're dropping two episodes at a time so you the viewer will have 
two extra hours to spend with Kaylee Cuoco hopping around the globe uh, in The Flight Attendant. Um, and Richard and I will have two more hours of television to talk about, but like we're still only doing two episodes for the whole season, um, if that makes sense. So my apologies for the confusion there. I've heard back from some of our listeners who are already watching The Flight Attendant, and they are loving it absolutely. So I really, really recommend you guys uh, board that plane because uh, it is a really, really good time and, and kind of like a fun companion to the undoing because it's like equally in the world of like uh upper echelon of society and murder but like with but a different tone entirely and so it's sort of like a nice little light thing to hop to uh yes there's murder uh but but it's it's definitely lighter than the undoing so there's that uh richard anything you want to say about the flight attendant or or anything else before we get into this um, I guess only that like people should watch The Flight Attendant, not just to listen to this, but because I don't know, over the Thanksgiving holiday, that show really seems to have blown up. Uh, I saw a lot of people being like, I never thought of Kaylee Cuoco this way, which is kind of what we talked about in our first episode about the show is about exactly. like this kind of reinvention of her. So that's interesting. There's going to be a mystery to follow along with as there was with The Undoing. So if you're feeling bereft of that now that The Undoing is over, <laughs> just turn to the other part of HBO, <laughs> the less clearly defined part, and uh, and watch The Flight Attendant. And yeah, we'll, we'll circle back with um, another reaction episode for that. So let us... Um, we got a, a bunch of emails about The Undoing. Most of them were theories before the finale. Most of them were really elaborate theories. None of those elaborate theories uh, wound up panning out um, in the episode. So I don't know that I'm going to like go down all of those route holes, but I will say like a lot of people suspected that Lily Rabe was going to... like Was either the murder... Like, they were like, she's got something to do. And she did have something... Uh, a- bit of a something to do in this episode and i also think what's true you know uh, is that you and i were like uh you don't cast no jupe and you're, unless you're going to ask him to do a lot and i think he does a lot in this finale and so i don't think that that was really off the mark of saying that um but in the end uh it was the first suspect is the last suspect uh he did it in the book he did it in the show uh it is Hugh Grant he is the murderer um so the big question i think about the undoing as people are processing it is something that Susanna Beer said to me sort of when this all kicked off is that you know David E Kelly delivered a script to her that was a sort of a more faithful adaptation of the book which Ne- is not a who done it. The book is not a who done it. You know who done it. It's Jonathan Fraser, uh, and so the book is more about how Grace comes undone with that knowledge, and that's what David E. Kelly gave Susanna Beer. And Susanna Beer is like, what if instead we make it a who done it? So the question we're facing now that the whole season is done is, do we think that was the right move or? Uh, or was there a way to do that to make it a mystery and still circle back and land with the first suspect is the last suspect? Do you have any thoughts on that, Richard? Well, I was thinking about it last night when we watched when I watched the show, and you know, the title of the book is "You Should Have Known." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we should have known. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's a little bit of a bait and switch to craft this as as a you know a proper whodunit, wherein the thinking is. Well, there's going to be twists and turns, and so it's not the first person we suspect or the second person we suspect, you know. Um, And then to be like, oh, no, no, it was this thing all the whole time, you know. I think that's a little bit frustrating from, like, a television viewing perspective. But I think that more sort of 
literarily, more textually, like there is something interesting about that. Like I had begun to like assume that Jonathan hadn't done it. And mostly because I just trusted that like this kind of narrative is going to take us somewhere unexpected. Right. But also because like, maybe it seemed like, Oh, it's too obvious that it's the rich white guy doctor. Like, you know, there has to be something more complicated to it. And I think that they're like, no, <laughs> it's it. He was a, he, he was a violent liar and he did it, you know, and like Occam's razor would suggest. So I think that there was some sort of commentary in there, maybe a little bit about where we place suspicions uh, and how we justify um, giving people like Jonathan Fraser in the real world the very prolonged benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, no, like the the question of the like there were a couple things that were really interesting to me in the finale. And so one question of like could he get away with it? How much does privilege insulate a person like Jonathan Fraser in a way that it wouldn't insulate another another character like he almost gets away with it because he has like a certain kind of lawyer and a certain kind of like respect air of respectability around him and stuff like that um the other thing that i was thinking about is um i think it's i you know this is david e kelly we've been talking for a couple episodes about the fact that like david e kelly does courtroom drama and courtroom twists very well um you know, I don't know that this is like the very, very best example of his work, but I do think the idea of like Grace going on the stand as a witness for the defense and using that to damn him, uh, like through back channels and stuff like that, like a clever, like, you know, navigation of legal loopholes, uh, to stitch him up real tight. Like that's, that's fun. That's fun to watch in its own way. Um, I guess I wish I I don't know that I needed suspense around who done it, but I maybe I needed more suspense about whether or not Grace would have hung him out to dry in this way, which I think, you know, they were trying to show us her wrestling with it. But I had no doubt heading into this, like not just because we see her like confer with Lily Rabe and we see Lily Rabe talk to the prosecutor in the bathroom and stuff like that. Like, I just think I had no doubt, given who Grace is, that she was asking to be put on the stand so that she could hang him out to dry. And I kind of wish that that had been something I didn't see coming. Do you know anything? Oh, I was surprised. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. But, no, no. Maybe I'm but just like, a suspicious I, but I think mind. That, but I think yeah. that I was in the, maybe in the minority in that because I was watching it uh, with my boyfriend and he was like, he was clued into that. He'd, he'd watched the whole five episodes that day, like on Sunday. And then like we watched the finale together and he was like, all, like on the, the, he knew it right away. And I was like, Oh wait, look there. She's like actually, you know, sending him up the river. And he was like, yeah, duh. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it really is just in the eye of the beholder. But like, I think I also really, uh, I, I, I was like a lot of our emailers and like me when I watched lost or Westworld or whatever, I was so caught up in my like intricate theories that more obvious developments were sort of, I was blind to them, you sure. know? Okay. I see, like, I see that. Like yeah. even as, even as like at the bitter end is like Jonathan in the car with Henry. I was like, it's still going to reveal that it was someone else. It's just not, it was just him. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, let's go to, let's go to our um, interview with Susanna beer. This was recorded 
you know, before the the season even debuted. So like to context of, of where we are. And I had not seen the finale when I talked to her. So I will not be asking finale specific questions, but I still think uh, some of what she has to say about her thinking behind creating this uh, season is interesting. So let us hear from Susanna Pierre. I've learned so much about your process this week. It's been really, really <laughs> fun and fascinating to me. Um, but one thing I, I heard that you do that I just think is really interesting is this idea of giving the performer uh, room and time to sort of warm up in the space before you actually start the scene. Uh, how, is this something you've always done? Uh, and And what do you feel like is accomplished in doing that? Yeah, it's something I I mean, I've done it as long as I remember, and I can't remember when I started doing it. I guess I started feeling that, you know, for for, for that the cast and myself needed the space to play, and needed needed a bit of a playground before the crew, before everybody came, and everything became real, and everything became slightly technical. And so what it does is that it sort of we have ownership of the set and we can play with it and we can define ourselves and we can have all the conversations and all the argument and all the fun. And then once the crew comes onto set, there is something, there is like a real robust sense of where the scenes needs to go. And, and it, and it kind of, um, it, it's an investigation, but what it also does, other than investigate and finding some version of truth, it also gives an, a weird calmness to everyone. Because we've been there, we talked about it, we know it, and we have this art secret. Even if we share it with, the, you know, even if we share the physical uh, you know, he will go there, she will be standing there. Even if we share that once the crew comes on board, the sort of emotional layers have been have been tried and are now protected by having been worked on before everybody comes there. I don't know why everyone doesn't do it that way. <laughs> I don't know either. Each director's process is different. And mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, they might it might not be useful for a lot of directors so uh, but for me it's it's a necessity yeah um i want to ask you about um outside of you know the script and then your interpretation of the script when you're constructing a thriller whether or not you're trying to do hitchcock or anything like that how do you ensure, or, or do you even think about it this way, that the audience's suspicion is constantly shifting? What outside, you know, the twists and turns that are on the page um, create that or, or, or drive that guessing game that's part of the fun of watching a thriller? It's very much, in, it's very much a question of, of um, who looks at who, um, who has... Who I mean, it's all it's 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 to an extent for it to be successful. It's everything. It's it's just as important everything which is not on the page, mm. all the details, all the you know, um, 
is somebody is somebody like fumbling with her back is somebody you know it's all the small signs it's all the and also again i mean you know does the light come in of the window are we seeing something slightly irrational which makes us feel uneasy about something which should be completely comfortable mm. so it's about all those small meticulously planted details which are not rational and which are not necessarily part of the narrative, but which is part of the atmosphere and a, which is which is somewhat more subconscious. Um, and you know, you want to you. It's it's very hard to say exactly what it is, but it's incredibly tangible like if you took out all those elements you wouldn't be sitting on the edge of the seat (laughs) 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 because i mean you you do see thrillers which have which have all those turns and you you don't really it doesn't really impact you Mm -hmm. because because it's it's very much about details it's very much about the way nicole looks or um uh, does Hugh like drop something and then pick it up or you know it's about all sorts of irrational thing and those irrational things they come on set but they also sometimes come in, in the, at the rehearsal but but those irrational things have very much to do with with not being too too limiting you know they are kind of it's the life that happens while you do it so just does that mean just being open to whatever may come in in the rehearsal process that feels like it adds to that environment no it's not just about being open Mm -hmm. and also it's throughout the day it's also throughout the entire day it's also when you shoot but Mm -hmm. it's more about nurturing Mm -hmm. and cultivating those unexpected beats and 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 creating them you know it's also about enforcing a situation where they where they can thrive can i circle back to a question uh something you said that um i'm just curious to know more about you mentioned the light coming through the window are you able to talk specifically about the lighting on this show and and how that contributes to that unease that we feel watching it Yes, um, I don't know whether it's the lighting as such as, uh, but as the sort of, um, um, you know, the the combination of of darkness and 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 light. And I want to say, you know, that it's the whole visual. It's it's the you know, it's also the lenses. It's also the fact that there are. Um, that the camera is slightly worried. You know, the camera is consciously slightly nervous. And I don't mean sort of handheld, insane nervous, but there is a constant sense of movement. Yeah. And that that is a huge factor in that sense of unease that you have. Because that it kind of never really allows you to relax. Can you talk a little bit about the um, the flashbacks that appear? They're very sparing. Um, you know, it's not as it's not nearly so impressionistic as 
you know, what they were doing on season one of Big Little Lies, for example, or something like that. But there are these carefully planted flashes, often sort of in a, like a honey gold color um, type of thing. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you talk about your decisions around those and how to use them? Well, you know, the, you know, we are slightly teasing you with the flashbacks because we are not, we are not entirely clear about them being flashbacks or being someone's imagination mm-hmm. and um, or both possibly uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and um, and um, and 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 you know it was funny because at some point we didn't edit where we took them all out mm. and um, and it 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 weirdly worked but it was just somewhat less exciting because we weren't we weren't staring up questions which those flashbacks are staring up and so we we put we changed them and put them back in in a different way um but it's it's you know it's it's always a precautious balance with flashbacks because you kind of you know they are very seductive but also they might actually damage what comes after if they sit in the wrong way um so so we were kind of yeah there was a lot of experimentation with those. And then I want, I wanted to ask you another casting question. And this is about Noah. Um, I, I'm a huge Noah fan. I've seen him, uh, you know, he's, he's just done, he's so young and has already done so much incredible work. Um, you know, but, but, but casting for a kid can be really hard, especially a kid is centrally positioned as, as this kid. Um, you know, what are you looking for? Uh, in a in a child performer and what and what did Noah specifically bring to the table in that regard? You know, he was a night manager, and and at that time he yeah. was probably eight or something. That's right. And he was amazing. And he did like he did the scene where he was kidnapped, which is a very very scary kid scene and a very scary scene for a young kid. And so I knew him, and I knew how insanely talented he is. And so it was fun now work with him quite a, like a while later where he's now like kind of a young man and, and, and uh, you know, sort of has opinions and, and, and has a kind of obviously a, a bigger awareness of what is he do, what is equally talented. I think in general, what I'm looking for in, in, in children acting is sort of the same as growing up is that kind of instinctive sense of another character and and even very small kids if they're if they're talented have that they kind of understand what somebody would be doing how somebody would be responding whether somebody would be sitting or standing they sort of get it even if it's not articulated and we know it's now way more articulate, but he's very, he's kind of very sensitive and very emotional, but he's also someone with a great sense of humor. Um, but, you know, he's, he, he carries himself, I mean, he kind of holds his own, particularly with that, with, you know, he could be intimidating with the cast he's surrounded by, but oh, he's yeah. not sort of thrown. Yeah uh donald sutherland alone you're like oh oh my goodness um 
And then my 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 last question for you, and thank you, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, this might be a tricky <laughs> question to answer. I think I think it'll be okay. Um, but my question is, when you were when you were first reading the script, you get the script, you're first reading it. This is a whodunit. Um, Actually, it wasn't. Because, oh, it wasn't because because the first the first version of the first draft was not so much whodunit, but more into the characters oh and, okay and and so 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 i guess i was kind of asking david do you think it could be more whodunit and more thriller and he was like yes absolutely but but um you know it it kind of happened more during the process than it did um initially Oh, that's fascinating. So you you knew who done it <laughs> from from the very beginning uh, when when you were reading the project. Yes. Okay. So much for my question, which was like, when did you figure it out, and were you surprised and shocked? <laughs> um, but that's so interesting that it was then retroactively sort of re repositioned to be such a mystery. Um, you know, I think David, David Kelly is kind of he's quite playful, and I think that that game was very intriguing for him to kind of really enforce that you know he might have it might have been in the back of his mind but 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 the first episode could have definitely gone more um kind of family drama and less thriller Mm. but I was quite keen to 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 kind of I was asking him to make it more thriller um Oh, oh yeah speaking of playful uh Hugh Grant asked me who I thought did it and I I bet you he asked every single person he talked to I'm sure he does it. <laughs> and what did you say <laughs> uh well so I've only seen up through episode five and so I, I you know I'll, I'll be as honest with you as I was with him which is that I was suspicious of Noah from the beginning only because I know what Noah could do. And so I was like, I don't think you cast Noah unless you're going to ask him to do something really big. So I was like, well, what if it's Noah? Uh, but then I got my beady little eyes on Donald Sutherland at one point as well. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's working on me. I'm just, I'm, I'm bouncing around. I don't know. I don't know what to say. So that's where <laughs> I am. <laughs> I did ask, I did ask Lily, why her character keeps making meaningful eye contact with the prosecutor and she told me to stay tuned. So that is one clue that I am trying to follow. Uh, we'll see what happens, but I think that hopefully that speaks to what you were trying to establish in terms of like, it's not necessarily on the page. It's the, it's the, the glances exchanged and you know, that sort of stuff. So if that's exactly. the case, it's working on me. Um, oh, good. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman. And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. 
you can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Is there, Richard, is there a performance in this episode that that particularly sticks out to you as like one that you were most compelled by? Well, I mean, Kidman in the, you know, witness box or whatever, like that is was pretty compelling. And she's so good at that kind of deftly modulated like she's playing this professional intelligent woman who by her career training has to be measured and you know but 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 precise you know and um and i thought that was just like really mesmerizing to watch uh because she'd never betrayed what she was what grace was actually doing in the acting it was all you know it was all pretty uh deftly done um i i also think that you know we have talked about him a little bit, but he hasn't really gotten much to do like vocally. But I thought that Eden Alexander playing Miguel, you know, it's a quiet, sad scene when he's being, yeah. you know, questioned on uh, by, by these lawyers or by one lawyer. But um, I thought that, that he did a really good job with a tricky kind of moment. Um, and and it really, you know, I, I, I had hoped I'd said in an earlier episode that I hope the show kind of ended on a consideration of him because he is so co- like at the dead center of this and has been so little spoken about, you know, um, and the show obviously was not going in that direction. Ultimately, it didn't have that sort of commentary, you know, front of mind, a top of mind. But like, I still think that 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 one that testimony moment at least reminded us of this kid whose life has been really gutted uh by this whole uh you know sordid thing i thought that was a beautiful scene i thought it was like you know it's upsetting to watch but i think that his performance like he was so good and then all the adults in the room were doing a great job of watching him because it's such an awful thing um you know however gentle the questions it was just such an awful thing um you know as part of haley's uh, you know, do whatever it takes to win uh, tactics. And and the thing that I like about Haley's character is like, she she doesn't strike me as a monster. Like, she wants to win. That's her job is to win. She doesn't strike me as a monster. But I just find it, I, I think what's the most interesting in this episode is like, where is your moral line? Which is something that Grace is dealing with. Where is my moral line? What feels like the moral thing to do? What feels like the right thing to do? Um, and similarly with Haley, you know what I mean? Like she's, (laughs) when she turns on him and is like, you didn't get rid of the hammer, you're a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? Like you see where her moral line is, which is maybe a little further down the road than Mm -hmm. you had, than you had hoped it would be. Um, but, but uh, we keep, I don't, I I don't want to like unfairly compare the undoing to other shows, but I, but I did find myself thinking a lot about succession because we keep referencing this one line from succession, which is no real person evolved in this idea of like maybe how Jonathan thinks about um, Elena and Elena, as he calls her, like um, does he love her or does, is she not a real person? Is anyone who's not Jonathan himself a real person to him? You know, like that's sort of the question, but like, 
I was thinking, I was like, okay, but what Succession does really, really well is there's there's a crime. There's no question about who did the crime, but there's a question about where people's, what people, how low people allow themselves to sink in order to preserve their own comfort uh, or their, or feed their own ambition in Succession. And that's really interesting to me. And I think it would have been more interesting to me to watch Grace know the whole time that her husband did this and feel a lot more ambiguity about, I mean, like feel her astonishment, but also feel, at least from my point of view, a lot more ambiguity about, well, but is she going to upset the apple cart of her life um, for this, you know, for this moral right here? Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know. I was, I was just trying to. I was just trying to like because the performances in this show are so good because the direction is so good. I was just watching the finale, not connecting with it exactly the way I wanted to, and trying to figure. Then I was just busily trying to figure out how would I have constructed this season so that all of those things could have worked in concert together. You know. Yeah, I mean it's tricky because you know if you already know then it becomes a dra- much more of a drama which is less marketable in this true crime boom era you right, know right right um but it would have been maybe more thematically honest in a way like i don't know it it's it's difficult and i think that like you know obviously online there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the finale i, I would count myself among them to some extent but I, I think i liked it more than other people did but i think in that dissatisfaction because there had been such a build up uh some crucial things get lost, like like the scenes we're talking about, these great performances we're talking about. I think that Noma Demis, when you you know, as as Haley, when you see her finally let the mask slip, yeah, and she's like, because you didn't f- hide the fucking hammer or something, yeah. or you know, you're like, oh, she's like pretty, pretty much not on the side of bad exactly, but like she's an operator, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and I also think to that extent, like Hugh Grant is excellent in those final scenes, like some of the more interesting, like daring, like you know outside of his comfort zone acting i think we've seen him do maybe ever and uh and yes that acting was ultimately in service of a finale that people didn't like or some people didn't like um but like on its merits alone like his like he's so good in that scene and i think that the way that that character ultimately is drawn as this terrifying pathetic you know just duplicitous person trying to live two lives at once like i think it's a really compelling portrait of that kind of person and maybe particularly of that kind of uh you know wealthy white man were you speaking to the car chase specifically or yeah i think the car chase when he is with henry and he's trying in that very you know sort of sing-song Hugh Granty way, just try to be like, oh, a good old chap, you know, talking about fried clams and, and and using this kind of antiquated verbiage to just like have this little jokey rapport with his son. And the son, you know, as well played by by Noah Jupe, is like, what is going on? This is this is like creepy, creepy, creepy. And then Jonathan says, No, not 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 the father you know, not not the me that you know. And and, and the way that he's able to disassociate those two things um i think that's a really compelling psychological portrait and uh you know maybe the the strength of that gets a little bit lost in people's kind of anticlimactic uh you know disillusion with like how the show ended i completely agree i will say like watching the car chase scene um 
or e- even before it becomes a chase, um, that um, I had never seen Hugh Grant do anything like that. I a thousand percent agree with you. And I was like, this is really fascinating to watch him do something. Uh, yeah, as you say, it's like, uh, I, ke- I kept thinking of him as like, uh, in the last few episodes, a caged animal, just like, you know, backing into one corner after another corner after another corner and trying to scrabble his way out. And we see it early in the episode when he like tries to shift the blame to his son, which feels like a breaking point for everyone in the family. Right. Um, and, and then we see it here where he's just sort of like in a, in a very manic way, like, like very Henry Hill in Goodfellas with the helicopter overhead sort of way. Like the walls are closing in. I'm desperately clinging to this persona that I crafted for myself. Like that's what, that's what caused him. I don't know. Uh, it, it was the motivator for him to kill. Uh, Elena was, was her threatening his like separate personality that he had built for himself. Right. Her, and her, her, her insistence that she knew him right you know this like you're never gonna leave me and he's like proving her wrong he's proving his like dominion over her he's like you know he he's offended by the idea that anyone let alone this like you know mistress would presume to have that kind of authority over him you know to know what someone's gonna do to know like their weaknesses is to kind of lord something over them and he just couldn't abide that you know yeah and i and i buy that like i totally like that totally makes sense in the show's psychology but that disassociation that he has like he's like that's not me like the real me is is the child oncologist is you know pediatric oncologist is your father is like grace's husband that's the real me and it's just it's fascinating to watch him cling to that as like everything uh falls apart around him Honestly, yeah. like, yeah, the the finale was a mixed bag for me, but like, there are some real bright spots in the courtroom drama and in uh, several performances. Um, I think I just wish the whole thing had hung together a little differently, or that I felt um, that I felt like it was less invested in twists and turns and trying to keep me constantly guessing and more and just like digging into these characters you have these incredible performances from these incredible performers you know what i mean and that's really i i honestly fundamentally think that's all you needed uh for this show to keep us engaged so i think also i don't always want this but i think in this case i could have used some sort of coda or epilogue or something because i think that one of the big undoings that is not really investigated by the show because it just runs out of time and then ends is that by grace doing that on the stand she has destroyed her career she has shown herself in in the public's perception in in, depending on how much of the public believes that it was purposeful yeah you know she has but there is enough doubt hanging in the air that she like how can any how would anyone ever pay her what six hundred dollars an hour to assess their like perception of the world you know and to like give them advice essentially you know, and, and she's cognizant of that. She can't not be. And so I just I just wanted maybe something, some kind of extra beat at the end after the big climax that like indicates something toward like what life is going to be like her. I mean, obviously, financially, she's fine. Her father is ungodly wealthy. Um, 
you know, there's no concern about that material thing, but like her public identity, her, her son's identity, they're, they're standing in this carefully curated community of rich assholes is essentially over. Uh, and her career is over, I think. But, uh, I guess we're just left to kind of ponder that and, um, you know, wonder what if. I hope she and Henry and probably Donald Sutherland and maybe Lily Rabe will come with them, like all move to California or something. Let's go to Monterey, oh, sure. go to Monterey <laughs> yeah, and start yeah. over. Oh, God. Um, but like she, I mean, she, uh, she has enough money that she doesn't need her career. Not that that like, if her work is rewarding to her, I'm not saying it doesn't matter that she doesn't have that. But like, I'm, I'm actually the code that I'm interested in is like, how traumatizes Henry by all of this uh, in his life? You know what I mean? Like you were, you were sort of talking last week about how you suspected this would be a sort of like, we need to talk about Kevin mm-hmm. kind of story. And I kind of think it still could be, you know what I mean? Like Henry's going to come out the other side of this. I mean, like he, the kid ran the, the hammer through the dishwasher twice. Like, you know what I mean? This kid has some, has some things going on and he experiences incredibly awfully traumatic thing with his father um here at the end in addition to all the other traumatic things so there you know there is some questions about henry's future like grace is ultimately the reason though i kind of think she should have made her mind up before but ultimately it seems like the reason grace decides to sort of send jonathan away um as best she can is you know what her father says to her which is like you know this is he's going to be in your life forever. Um, he's going to be around your son forever if you don't do something about this. Yeah. Know? And it kind of made me wonder, like if the hammer being the sort of last straw thing for her, where she was like, okay, this is it. Now I'm, now I'm, you know, joining the opposition in secret. If what that indicates is like, she knew the whole time. You know, and that she was hoping maybe that there was some rational explanation or that there was some way that they would get out of it and then they would deal with it later, you know. Um, But when she saw that all of that compromise could also threaten her son directly. Yeah. She was like, oh, well, never mind then. I'm giving up the charade, you know. Um, but in, in a, in a tact, in a, in a very, you know, strategic way. Well, I mean, we, um, we hear the 911 call, um, which we had already seen, but, you know, hearing it played in court. Um, is another thing entirely, but like, and, and we also know that Grace went and had sex with him anyway, which we talked about after that. And that, to me, that moment where she goes back to her old, her house that she shared with him and has sex with her husband is like, I really need to cling to my old life. And that is the most interesting. That is what I believe that I haven't read it, but I believe that that's what the book is about is like how do I let go of my life before? And yeah. And, and as far as I understand it, uh, a question of like, how can I even do my job? Uh, how can I claim to be able to do my job if I didn't see this coming sort of thing? So, um, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of fascinating. It's a really fascinating, uh, season of television in terms of like what went really right and what didn't quite work for me. Um, and like how, how something can have such high highs and such things that don't work like right next to each other, almost scene by scene sometimes. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we undid ourselves, uh, this, this fall, Richard. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's been interesting. And I think it's been a really interesting study and expectation. And like, I think what you, you know, you made the right point in saying that like all the show needed was these good performances and these interesting characters and the rest would have followed. Um, and I agree with you, but the problem is they set it up as something else, you yeah. know, and didn't really deliver the goods on that front with also, I think at the end, some sort of indulgences toward like thriller stuff with the helicopter and the chase. And, you know, why does this private helicopter allowed to land on this bridge where there are tons of police, you know, things like that, where you're like, it's kind of scratching your head. Um, but I think at root, you know, it was only what five episodes. And like, so it wasn't a huge investment of our time. It helped pass, you know, some some dreary weeks you know a a very stressful time well you know what's six episodes i guess it was sorry yeah well what's interesting when you said it's a it's an interesting exercise and expectation what's fascinating is we were like oh we'll cover we are who we are while we're waiting for the undoing was sort of the conversations Uh we had behind closed doors we were just sort of like well we know we want to do the undoing because it's this like big glossy like Kidman Grant, like uh, you know, uh, who done it, and and like I said, I'm not uh, I'm not upset that we did it at all, but we are who we are really snuck up on us, which which we talked about as like uh, it's one of my favorite things that I watched this year, um, and I had no expectations going into it. In fact, like to be perfectly, perfectly, perfectly transparent, up until the last minute, we thought we were going to do a different show, and then we sort of switched at the last minute to we are who we are. So like that is. That is something that I've been really delighted by uh, in in doing the show with you is sort of like walking into certain things and expecting that that's going to be the thing and then actually discovering something that I had very uh, low or no or whatever expectations around winds up being the thing that really sticks with me. So um, if folks are listening to this and they didn't happen to watch We Are Who We Are with us, um, I really recommend you go back and, and check that out because it, I just think it was astonishing and then this 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 had its joys as well but like that that really really stole my heart um you know this this fall so yeah yeah it was um i guess really a testament to like if if the thing seems initially worthy like putting the time in and like investing it you know and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't uh in the way you'd hoped but um you know they're both really interesting things and uh i am glad that like with other services or channels kind of, I think losing a bit of their quality momentum. Uh, I, I HBO, I think is still operating on a pretty high level even, even with this show, which, you know, turned out to be pretty um, silly in some ways. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I just like, I honestly, I had a pretty good time watching the finale. Like even the parts that Same, made me laugh, yeah. like the hammer going through the dishwasher twice. Like I didn't watch it last night because I was getting my Christmas tree. But like I, uh, I, I saw someone tweet something like he put the hammer in the dishwasher. The show is a comedy, and I was just like, I don't know. There's just like, and and what's funny about the what is really interesting about the undoing is like I I didn't know how many people were watching the show because it didn't seem like there was a lot of conversation around it and then all of a sudden everyone was talking about the finale last night uh, at least on on my twitter and several other people's like twitter feeds and i think that's kind of uh, a fascinating thing and and i was just sort of like never underestimate the power of the hbo sunday night like just some people that's what hbo has that no other channel has is this like ownership over of our time on a sunday night where it's just like you follow the time slot week to week. Not not every person and not every show, for sure. But there's a lot of people 
for whom they're like, whatever it is that HBO decides is worthy of the Sunday night slot, that's what I would be watching right now. And I think that that's, um, I don't think any of, you know, no other channel has that. And, you know, NBC used to have that with its like Thursday block, but no other channel has that. And certainly no streaming platform has that. You know, streaming platforms have other powers. Uh, HBO Max, you know, is trying to get a piece of that power. But like HBO proper Sunday night, um, that's an institution that still stands amongst all of this, which is interesting to me. All right, let us uh, wrap things up here with our conversation with Nicole Kidman. Uh, once again, this was uh, you know recorded at the beginning of the season, uh, so no finale questions here as well. But um, interested to hear about her process, especially on the on the heels of um, Hugh Grant's description. Like, if you listen to Hugh Grant's interview last week, his description of working with her, and then her description of her own process, which are which is which is different. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I think that that's, I don't know, I find that kind of interesting to hear, like, co-workers describe the same experience from a different point of view. So here we go. Here is uh, Nicole Kidman on Playing Grace. Thank you so much. Hello, Nicole. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks for chatting with uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was speaking to Susanna this morning, and she let me know that um, the script that she originally received it wasn't as much of a whodunit thriller, and it was sort of her her desire to do a thriller that that changed the project. How did that align with what you wanted? or envisioned the project to be? I mean, I I went into this with David E. Kelly presenting two episodes of this um, limited series saying, um, would you be interested in playing Grace, which is was, was like a gift from the heavens because um, that rarely happens as an actor um, where there's just something that's so well-written and tight just sort of gets given to you. And... Um, and then Susanna and I had circled for many years um, with the possibility of working, but there was never any project. But we'd met at parties, and we have an a we share an agent, and there was a always a um, discussion about how great she was. And I was a huge fan of a lot of her films that she, when she made in Denmark, and obviously the Night Manager was. Um, just riveting and the way she handled that um that genre and mixed it and gave it such wonderful character um depth but also managed to produce a a huge thriller you know that was global um and spanned the world and she directed all of those episodes so she I just wanted to work with her and when she came in it was basically more like me going what is your vision Here's the show, but obviously you're a filmmaker and um, and now you take it and mould it and make it what you want it, the story you want to tell with this um, with this template of these characters. Something I love about uh, about the character of Grace and, the, and a number of people have talked to me about this is this idea that she both very much fits into this world. She was born into it and doesn't fit in is an outsider in a couple of ways. And I'm wondering how you um, tackled that personally from your performance. Um, 
that's probably a, a sort of a, a similar place in which I come from where a lot of the times I've felt, you know, I can, I can move through different worlds, but, um, I've probably because of being a transient person, um, and just being a very artistic person since I was really, really young and having a slightly, um, odd sensibility and, and view of the world <laughs> and being raised with a family that was very, um, just always thinking out of the box. Um, and, uh, I think I always have felt like an outsider. I've never, and maybe everybody in the world feels like this. I've actually not met many people who go, Oh yeah, I just have always felt like I've been popular and, and, and been able to fit in and can sort of <laughs> mix in any place and never feel. So it's probably a deep part of many people's psyches, but it's obviously a deep part of mine. And so that's where I related to her and her quietness. I mean, she's an introvert ultimately, but she's very, um, she's, 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 she's open. Um, but she also has, has her boundaries and she's, and she protects her heart. And I think that's probably a place that I come from as well. <laughs> that it, it also shines through in these incredible costumes that are both, you know, of course, you know, Grace has uh, scads of money. But she has her own style, which, which very much, um, is, is, is very distinctive. You know, she's not, um, that, that, that was part of the thing that seen whose, whose work with Susanna. She was the costume designer and Susanna both had a very, very strong take on what they wanted. And I remember doing the, the initial wardrobe fittings and we tried on some things and it was far more bohemian and it just, and there was a lot of vintage things and we were sort of trying them. And then Susanna came in and sat on the couch while we were trying things on. She's like, no, no, no. <laughs> in her um, gorgeous direct way. And so then slowly it came it, the, the character evolved in our eyes as we held it, and a lot of it just had to be made because it wasn't things that you could find in the store. I mean, that green coat is is extraordinary. It's unbelievably heavy, I might add. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like wearing <laughs> a massive blanket, heavy-weighted blanket. <laughs> Did that help in a certain degree in terms of, uh, you know, walking the streets of New York in, in a, in a depressive shell-shocked funk and you've got this heavy thing weighing you down. Does that help you? <laughs> yes. It's sensorily that was very helpful, but at the same time it felt very protective and it felt like a blanket and it felt like a way in which I could sort of, um, uh, hide underneath it, even though it was very eye catching. And she also always talked about this as a dark fairy tale. So there's that slightly fairy tale aspect to walking through the forest and, and all of those, um, cinematic things that she layers in and the hair and all of that. There's a reason for it because nothing is just sort of random or, or by chance. I mean, it's all sort of, um, the texture of the series is very, very thought out. And then what, what is created on the set is something very, very loose actually, where the blocking and the ideas of the scenes get found on the day, um, amidst these extraordinary backdrops, which is a really wonderful way to work as an actor. 
And so things, the way she saw certain scenes suddenly would, would really change um, as Donald and I or Hugh and I or Nora and I were mining them. And then we had Lily Rabe, who's just divine, and Noma, who came in and just sort of just commanded the, the set. <laughs> I mean, she really did because she's done so much stage and she was such a find for us. We were so lucky to have her because she just comes in with such weight and such intelligence and power and just dominated all of us. I wanted to ask you, um, Edgar Ramirez had some interesting things to say about how he reads the Joe and, and Grace interactions. And I'm wondering what your read is on their um, relationship. I mean, I really wanted Edgar. We had to move schedule. He was shooting another film and I was just like, I, I just, I wanted him. And so I was like, I don't care what it takes. We have to have Edgar. <laughs> um, I think I just felt that there would be a frisson between us, mm-hmm. which couldn't be defined. There was um, an aggression to him, but there was also care. There was, um, he's sort of inscrutable at times and um, he's very attractive um, and compelling um, and I think all of the complexities of that help this, um, this relationship where he's basically questioning me as firstly as a victim and then as a perpetrator. And so, and the swing of that was really interesting. I would, he and I, we would talk, but I, I communicate a lot of times with the actors with a, a slight veil of the character that I'm playing. So, mm. You seem, I talk, but a lot of what you're getting will be this sort of weird mix of, in that case, you know, Grace Nicole. And right now I'm playing sort of a Russian wellness retreat guru. So who's Russian? So called Marsha. So you're, so I have elements of that when I'm on the set <laughs> talking to people. I'm like, I can't wait till I shed this, this person and I can actually emerge as me. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's weird, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not, you're not sort of addressing me as the character's name, but I do say on the set of the thing I'm doing right now, I stay totally in the accent as I do with Grace. I don't use my Australian accent at all. I just stay totally in that, in that place. Cause I find it very okay. hard to switch. Yeah. It feels too much like a technician if I'm, if I'm doing those switches just on a dime. I much prefer the blurring of the, of the of the visceral and the technical that's so interesting because Hugh Grant said sort of exactly the opposite in terms of he was envious of your ability to dive in and pull out and dive in and pull out of a scene on a dime and he was like I need to get my headphones on and get in my mood and hear my music and Nicole can just come and go but you're saying your secret is you're always halfway in when you're in a given project. Yes. So how I'm relating or the questions that he would ask me and the way I would answer a lot of times would be imbued with grace, which he probably wasn't attuned to because he's just getting, um, you know, which is fantastic because um, so, yeah, so I don't know. It, it's And Donald knew that about me. Um, and I think Lily sort of knows that, but yeah, well, that's good that Hugh had that feeling. <laughs> What's your relationship with Donald Sutherland? Have you, have you two worked before? I... Yes, we did Cold Mountain together. Oh, of course. And he's also one of the heroes of American 
um, cinemas, you know, he's worked with, yes. I mean, not just American, European as well. So he's, he's really one of the people that you just go, I cannot believe that I get to sit here and talk to him, act with him. And, um, you know, he's quite paternal to me. So I already have that, um, that sense. he's tall and he's got that beautiful silver hair and you just want to put your head on his shoulder and have him hold you. <laughs> that's really, that's very relatable actually. <laughs> and he would wear those beautiful coats and I just want to sort of fold into him. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, you know, th- this project, the premiere of it was delayed because of everything that's happening everywhere, obviously. And, um, but that means that the audience who will be watching this show now is, I would say, demonstrably different than the audience that would have watched it in the spring. Um, we've all changed so much, or most of us have anyway, with everything, um, that's going on globally. Have you thought about that at all about how the audience may perceive the story differently? here in the fall than it would have in the spring? Um, I think we all felt very, very sad when it couldn't come out when it could. You know, there's a trajectory for a show that you go, okay, we're on this, we're on this now. But then there's also that that place where you're in control of nothing, um, ultimately. Things fall where they're going to fall and that's the nature of art. Um, and artistically as much as we all want to go okay we're going to plan this and this is the release dates and this is what's going to happen that all becomes um you know you you really get that lesson that there is no um preparing or timing or any of those things and I'm actually quite glad in a way because things things find their way and and now how it's perceived will be um yeah, we made it in a different climate, but it still resonates, I think, um, deeply. And hopefully human beings are still the same in terms of their needs, their desires, their, their losses, their, um, the way in which we all, um, you know, this, this is the deepest part of this is the person I love ultimately is not what it's who they seem but I desperately want to believe that they are. So what does that mean and how do I? And that's a that's a theme that has run through literature for, for you know, centuries. So um, it's just now the story is told with a different backdrop. So it is it is what it is. And there is the, the, the white privilege part of it, which now becomes very, very sort of um, fascinating. And then the demise of it. And, um, and that's interesting too. To follow up on that, um, this might seem like a silly question, but I've been really enjoying people's responses. So I'm going to ask you anyway, which is, um, what is your read on the title of the show, The Undoing? What do you feel like is most fundamentally undone by the story we see unfold here? Well, that gives the ending away. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's an important, you know, without sort of talking about it through my, through the lens of grace and therefore giving the whole story away. Part of the protection of the series is just going, take the ride, find, um, and that's been the greatest thing to see people respond to the ride. Um, I think there is a sense of wanting to just escape into something that I can, um, you know, just good, um, thriller 
um, roller coaster. Um, and as much as we all want to give enormous depth to everything, there is that aspect where you just go, I want to go on a ride. And that's been the response when I've had friends see it and everything. They're just like, I'm jonesing for the next step. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. (laughs) But I also think when you have a Scandinavian or European director making this story, that gives it, that's also a lens you're looking for. You have an American writer, but you then bring in. So for me, it's extremely global because the cast is global and very diverse and you have many different nationalities and you have many different, but you ultimately have a female who is Danish telling this story and she's deeply female which I think you feel through the series, but men seem to still be um, compelled by it, which is, you know, that's that's very Susanna. She's the mother of a son. Um, she's managed to carve a career from a generation of women that didn't have really any opportunities as directors, and yet she found her way. Um, and she's so she has this really interesting um, view on on masculinity as well, but she's deeply female. Well, my my last question for you is about Susanna. Um, I've heard so many interesting stories about her process, whether it's you know giving you more rehearsal time or allowing you to warm up in um you know on set before you dive into the scene itself, or the way her camera moves, um, which is can zoom in awfully close on on a random object at any given time. Um, what for you is the most um, delightful or productive aspect of of her specific process? Her just innate confidence in how she um, how she understands the camera, how she understands performance, and how she understands storytelling. So she has, because of her experience, um, she's she brings so much with her. Um, and part of a director's, you know, job is answering so many questions but keeping her vision intact and not being pulled off the um, the ultimate goal, which is what she wants to make. And she's just so adept at handling that. Yet you still feel, and I still felt very much a part of the process, she was incredibly loving to me. She's very, very strong and rigorous but she's got this underlying care um, and she's very dignified. So there's, there's that dignity, which I think bleeds through into her, into the way in which she handles her characters. She, she treats them all with a lot of dignity and that's a beautiful thing to watch. But she also, I love, I mean, we would be sitting there and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, she's shooting my eye, you know? <laughs> and then, and she just would, she just kind of, she doesn't tell you, she just does it, which is a wonderful thing as an actor. So I would just have to stay in the emotion in the character and thus things would just happen. Sometimes she'd shoot silent takes. She shoots with different cameras. We had a fantastic DP as well, Anthony, who's just a wonderful, wonderful DP. We had a great camera oper- operator, Roberto, um, and the synchronicity between them was very powerful. So there was a... um you know, it was just filmmakers, really strong filmmakers who are mature and grown ups. And that's nice to be surrounded by that. There's so much noise and there's so much distraction, but hey, you know, it, it, it's fallen where it's meant to fall and off it goes. And now hopefully the work finds, finds its way. 
the storytelling does. Before we before we head out, we you and I have one more episode to record um, this season. We're going to do one last flight attendant episode. Anthony Bresnikin and I are going to do two episodes on The Mandalorian. We've got um, an episode dropping this week on The Mandalorian and Rosario Dawson and all that sort of stuff. So there's going to be basically three more still watching episodes for the rest of the year. One more with Richard, two more with Anthony, and then it's on to 2021. And we don't know what we're going to be doing then. If you have any suggestions, you can always let us know. But I just really love this email from one of our listeners, um, who I believe his name is Kieran, um, if I know my Irish name pronunciations correctly. Uh, and Kieran wrote, um, Hi, Joanna and Richard. I hope you both had a lovely Thanksgiving. Just dropping a quick note to say that I got quite unexpectedly emotional in the last episode when you discussed wrapping up for the year. I first came across your podcast back in March of this year when the Mandalorian finally made its way to Ireland. Rude to come so late considering they used Irish locations for the sequel trilogy. And I've listened to this podcast through that series plus Westworld plus The Undoing and Now We Are Who We Are, which premiered here last week. Once I noticed that we were reaching, once I noted that we were reaching the end of the year, I didn't realize how much I looked forward to diving into this podcast series after I watched the latest episode of whatever it is currently being watched, and how much your voices in my ear on one of my quarantine walks was like a warm hug and offered a sense of comfort and normality on a weekly basis. That's all I really have to say, and I look forward to following whatever it is uh, that's up next. And I wish you both a happy holidays, and hopefully, twenty twenty one is kinder to all of us. Thanks, Kieran. So I, that was wow. a lovely email from Kieran. That's so nice. Yeah, and it was. It's just like really lovely. Um, I know a lot of you just sort of like decide to watch whatever we decide to watch, and I and and we really value your time and and you hanging out with us uh, series to series. And uh, you know, if, if you if you hopped on the still watching train late, there's a whole bunch of old stuff that you can go listen to. Hey, have you seen Sharp Objects? Go watch that and listen to us talk about that. That was a, that was one of my favorite ones. Hog Heat. Yeah. we had a whole catchphrase uh-huh. for that. <laughs> So, you know, there's a bunch of old uh, series that we did, but I just thought that was really sweet from Karen and we could all use yeah, a thanks, little, little holiday warm uh, warm wishes. So uh, we will be back one more time. Uh, send, we've already got a, a couple great flight attendant uh, emails from you guys, but email us still watching uh, pod at gmail.com and we will hit those flight attendant emails and hit that finale uh, when it airs in December. And Richard, until then... Where can folks find you? Well, I'm excited to say I am going dog shopping with Henry because he can finally get one now. Yay, Henry! <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yeah, you know, he was long denied that and now, you know, now he's free to do it. So we're going to be going to the, the shelter and trying to find a good dog for him and Grace. Uh, in the meantime, I will be tweeting at Ryla's writing reviews, including, oh, best of the year list will be up on December 1st, uh, best movies of the year. Uh, nice. And then Sonia Soraya's best TV of list uh, year Sonia Soraya's best TV of the year list will be up uh, also this week. Uh, so please check those out at pf.com. Joanna, until we uh, get on board uh, a plane with Kelly Cuoco again, where will, where will you be? <laughs> well, I'm actually going shopping with Henry as well, but we're shopping for dishwashers because I'm pretty sure they need a new one at the lake house <laughs> yeah. after what that other one's been through. Um, yes, I think I know what Sonia's number one. I, she told me what her number one show is and i think i agree with it and it's actually kind of a recent show one we haven't talked about um 
And I think that'll be a fun thing for people to check out if they haven't already. So read Sonia's list, then go watch her number one if it is what I think it is. And uh, and we will be back to Fly the Friendly Skies or the Not So Friendly Skies with Kaylee Cuoco. Also, we got a great flight attendant uh, theory email. It was so good that Richard texted it to me and then I also got a copy in my inbox. So like, send us your theories. I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna love all the flight attendant theories. Um, so send us those to watchingpod.gmail.com and we will see you later in December. Bye. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who only buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy, without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.